The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So the idea is that the next level of the internet or the next generation, they're calculus is that you know blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology will enable more dynamic innovation and if that innovation gets sort of a global scale allows more uh, more competitive applications and industries you know there's a risk there if that's happening in china built on really the chinese plumbing or the you know the, the chinese government infrastructure and the us and other countries are not able to compete you could see a strategic disadvantage there in the, you know, in the decades ahead, potentially. I'm Alvaro Marañón, fellow in cybersecurity law at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 1st, 2022. Non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, have captured the attention of thousands over the past few weeks and months. This technology's use has encompassed various forms of digital art, such as the popular depictions of cartoon apes. But one country has begun looking beyond NFTs used as a digital asset towards using it for the creation of a more centralized and restrictive internet ecosystem. I sat down with Yaya Fanusi, an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, to speak about the Chinese government's vision for this next iteration of the internet. Yaya is an expert on national security implications of cryptocurrencies, and recently has written Lawfare Post analyzing China's NFT and national digital currency initiatives. We discuss what an NFT is, including breaking down other technical acronyms, what the Chinese government's aspirations are with its national blockchain project, and what the strategic risk to nation states is if China can implement its technological vision. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 1st, China's NFT plans for digital control. Yeah, yeah. So to begin, can you break down what an NFT and Web3 are in your best ability? My best ability, uh, I will try my best because these terms uh, can be very esoteric. Let's start with NFT. NFT stands for non-fungible token. And, you know, this is in the realm of the cryptocurrency space and the blockchain space. Basically what it means is on a on, on a blockchain, you have a, a digital token that is obviously non-fungible. What does that mean? Typically, 
on blockchains, you have tokens, which basically designate ownership that someone with a wallet, someone that controls an address has a specific token on the blockchain, right? They have a private key, which allows them to control this token or amount of tokens. And those tokens can be transferred. So it's, you know, you have a Bitcoin, you're just transferring it to another address. What's unique about a non-fungible token is instead of a Bitcoin, which can just be traded, you know, they're all pretty much the same, you now have ownership to something that is specific. It is a unique asset, right? It is, it is, that's the only asset there is. Unlike, you know, if we think about dollars, right? Dollars are fungible, really doesn't matter. You know, they can all stand in for each other. But a non-fungible token often relates to digital art because what folks in the computer science world have done is they've taken this idea of, oh, if I can have a discrete or distinct asset on the blockchain, or if I can designate ownership of some distinct, unique thing, now I can take that unique thing, I can sell it, I can transfer it, I can write contracts on it. I know maybe I'm getting a little bit too far here, but but how it sort of manifested itself in this, the online world that we're most people are aware of is people have created digital art. And what they've done is they've written onto the blockchain that, hey, this file, this JPEG file or whatever, this is a unique thing. They're basically setting up a, a system where they have an asset. Its ownership is noted on the blockchain. Ownership meaning blockchain ownership, um, wallet ownership, right? And they are now, you know, now selling these tokens, or they're now selling these digital assets um, that anyone can not only buy, but because these tokens are on the blockchain, now the provenance, you know, the history of ownership of this unique thing can be traced, can always be identified, and your ownership can be verified because you have the private key, so it's your it's your thing. So anyway, NFTs have become a bit of a, you know, a, really a, a craze because people are, you know, doing things like, you know, taking a JPEG, taking an image, and then, you know, um, on the blockchain basically saying, look, boom, you have ownership of this image. The blockchain says you have ownership of it. And if you want this own, if someone else wants to own it, then they need to send me some cryptocurrency and then the ownership will change to their wallet, their address. So that's um, a bit of a roundabout way, but that's kind of how NFTs work. Web3 is, it's a little bit blurry, right? I mean, Web3 is, is maybe a catch-all phrase for really the decentralized internet that a lot of people envision, right? It's not really a formal, I mean, I guess it's formal because people are using it, you know, businesses are using it. But the way I see Web3 is sort of a new articulation of what blockchain enthusiasts had been talking about, I'd say years ago, which is because you have blockchains, which are these distributed ledgers, basically a computer science protocol that assigns ownership and that is sort of run in a very you know, distributed or decentralized way. In, in concept, blockchain applications allow for you to transmit data, to transmit value in a way where one person does not have to you know, facilitate those transactions. So Web3 is the idea of having a system built on decentralized applications where the data could be, you know, your data does not have to be held by one intermediary entity. You could have, you could envision um, basically the world on blockchains is, is sort of how folks in the blockchain uh, space are, are describing it, right? So instead of 
a big social media company that is centralized and that the monetization model happens where, you know, that company, you know, payments go to that company and then they disperse it. If you use that, if you had a decentralized model built on blockchains, you could have a, a, a business model where individual users, the content providers on the platform are able to, to monetize their content, you know, their data, hold their data, protect their data. So it's, you know, this idea of a more decentralized future where data is more efficiently shared, but also where data can be controlled at the individual level. Thank you, Yaya. That, that was a great breakdown of a very fluid and complex type of changing world. And it seems that NFT is kind of giving back ownership or trying to give back ownership to the user and Web3 is more user focused. So between these two concepts, we've been seeing traction in China, specifically in other parts of the world. Can you speak about China's general approach to these technologies? Have they embraced them or a little bit different? It's a little bit different or, or a lot different because, you know, let's go back to where this all started. This all started from from Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the first blockchain protocol. And the important thing about Bitcoin is it is a computer protocol that no one owns, right? It's really open source software that's available. It's unvetted in, or your access to it is unvetted. So anyone with access to the internet can get a, a Bitcoin wallet, can send Bitcoins, right? So this is a sort of permissionless environment. That's number one when, when we start from the foundation of, of what is blockchain. So China has, the Chinese government, I should say, has really been against the proliferation of cryptocurrencies and these permissionless blockchain technologies. You know, Bitcoin is just the first one, right? There are lots of other cryptocurrencies. So China has, for several years, really tried to clamp down on the use of cryptocurrencies because, because they can be used and sent and held anonymously or pseudonymously. So the regulatory stance in China has really been, you know, cryptocurrencies, hey, we're not going to allow them to proliferate because they could help to, you know, launder money and be used for crime. And so so that's been the stance. So when it comes to NFTs, NFTs are in that permissionless environment, right? Different blockchains allow you to have NFTs on them and you can sell one, buy one without registering anywhere. You don't need to necessarily on, on many of these marketplaces online, you don't have to sign in and give your ID. You can just download a wallet and get some, you know, some ether or, or whatever the crypto uh, token is and purchase NFTs. So the Chinese government has been saying that that's not allowed. In fact, the Chinese government actually has banned cryptocurrency trading. So that means that NFTs as experienced in the rest of the world right now, you know, can't proliferate in China. China will not allow NFTs, which could be purchased by a cryptocurrency token like Bitcoin uh, legally, right? That, that That's not allowed. But what is happening is, you know, more broadly, the Chinese government is investing in blockchain technology. But it's just, just not the permissionless open blockchain technology that most folks know about who deal with most cryptocurrencies. The Chinese government is interested in blockchain technology as an innovation that could help with data transmission, with the efficiency of data, with um, helping to assist with really artificial intelligence. It's, you know, blockchain is connected to the set of 
uh, technology innovations that the government is is looking looking towards for the future. So it fits in and Web three. Although you know, as far as I know it, the Chinese government isn't using the term Web three. It's that sort of a term that others are using in the blockchain space. But what it is doing is, I would say, by implication, it is um, headed towards or interested in a sort of Web three type environment. What do I mean? Look at what the Chinese government is doing um, strategically. So the you know Beijing has released most recently released a its most recent. A five-year plan for national informatization, and that's sort of a new, sort of funky term. I, I, I you know, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, this strategy for informatization is really China's attempt or aim to make a digital economy and to allow the Chinese government and Chinese industry to advance in a digital economy. What is a digital economy? Basically, uh, the idea of an economy where everything is connected to the internet. I think intuitively, a lot of us might say, well, hey, we're, we're, that's sort of where we're going, right? Or it kind of seems like everything is connected to the internet. Yeah, m- maybe generally, you know, internet of things and the like. Uh, but what, what, what I think China is doing is taking a step back and saying that, look, the future to all things economic is really improving them and enhancing them and connecting them uh, based on data, based on information, right? That's where informatization comes from. So, so how does the Web3 and how do NFTs fit? Well, you know, one thing that that I've been tracking for the past uh, year or two is something called the blockchain-based service network, and this is a it's a Chinese state-run or state-backed project which is investing in blockchain technology development. And it's, you know, blockchain in the sort of Chinese government sense, which is, you know, not cryptocurrencies, not blockchains that anyone could access, but blockchains, which are, yes, distributed ledgers that allow for more robust or more dynamic transmission of data. But the, the Chinese government has safeguards or the Chinese government can vet who can build on these on blockchain platforms. So. The motive behind China's approach to technologies, as you've described, is a little mixed between both a little hesitation, but also um, recognition of its utility. And and it's, it's kind of odd, with, especially with blockchain, that it, it's built, or at least the people in its community say it's decentralized. And China's, I guess, hesitation, is it focused on the consumer harm we've seen, like uh, anti-money laundering and know your customers? Or is it kind of more control, as you kind of mentioned in your article? Yeah, there are different levels to to China's stance. I mean, the complaint that the that Chinese financial regulators have had against uh, cryptocurrencies, right? It actually is a complaint that most jurisdictions have about crypto. Uh, that there are risks for money laundering, there are cybersecurity uh, risks, you know, hacking and the like, ransomware, even terrorist financing. I mean, these are all legitimate risks that you know um, that that are present. These are the things that I look at, right? Bad actors are definitely using crypto. And they use the anonymity or pseudonymity within the crypto space to um, to try to evade authorities as much as they can. So that's that's a very real threat there. But the thing is, 
every country, every jurisdiction, you know, is approaching it differently, or you know, or, or most jurisdictions aren't approaching it like China. So, I mean, you know, here like in the El US, Salvador, who embrace it fully, <laughs> right? You know, El Salvador, you know, where you know the Bitcoin is legal tender. Yeah, you're not going to see that in, uh, you know, in the People's Republic of China. So, I mean, you could say that there is more of a, you know, there's more of an authoritarian stance where it's where it's like, okay, yeah, there might be some good in crypto. Uh, you know, I'm sure there there's so many. I mean, think about this. Bitcoin mining, which is central to the permissionless, you know, Bitcoin blockchain, you know, for several years was, you know, number one in China. China was like the top des destination for Bitcoin mining. Uh, regulators were tolerating it. The government was, you know, tolerating it. Uh, but at a point, at a certain point, and maybe we could talk about the reasons why they started to crack down the past year or two, you know, they said, okay, no, 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 you know, we're not going to allow this to proliferate because, yeah, the, the money laundering risk, but I also think because there's, there's a threat there, right? If you have a system or a, you know, a, a, a digital money system that the government can't control, you know, that, that, that's a threat to the threat to the central bank. There's a threat to even a, a political threat, because, you know, a lot of what the mm -hmm. proponents of Bitcoin will say is that, you know, Bitcoin is the, the most sense or crypto is censorship resistance. You hear that in a lot of the crypto spaces. So politically, yeah, I'm sure there's a risk there, because if you have, let's say, political dissidents or, you know, anyone that the, the, the Chinese Communist Party does not want to be funded, cryptocurrencies actually serve as a way to potentially fund them, because it, again, is not necessarily controlled by a third party. So it kind of undermines their efforts of control. That makes complete sense. Yeah. And if you could explain, so if you were in China trying to buy an NFT, you can't mm. use cryptocurrency. What are the current restrictions that you've described? Uh, I know you spoke, spoke about BSN and DDC, and you could break it down a little bit for the reader. So the current restrictions. So yeah, I mean, if you're just a regular, well, I would say this, if you're just a regular person in China wants to buy NFTs, it's not that it's not possible. It's, it's that you're going to have to break the law and, you know, do a lot of things like you're going to have to go use it, try to use a VPN. Um, you're you're going to have to do some things to, to try to get it. And I'm sure that is still probably happening. But uh, what the BSN is doing is creating a network where now users would be able to, and this is still launching, right? So it's it's not like it's fully fledged out. They're, they're sort of launching this new network where the way it's constructed is it is a blockchain network, but to build, to create an NFT, you have to be a, like you basically have to be a developer who has to sign up. You have to, you know, show you have a business license and then you can create an NFT on this platform and people can buy it. Users in China can buy it, but they don't give cryptocurrencies. They, you know, have like their regular Chinese bank account. So they sort of work in the system, you know, it's on, it's on blockchain, but then they just build a centralized interface on top of it where you can, you know, pay via the regular Chinese payment apps. So that's how you would be able to access NFTs according to, you know, the, the BSN's infrastructure. Okay, so some type of licensing agreement, uh, like structure system. That makes sense. And what types of uses? I know we in the United States and a lot of media, we often see the use of NFTs in this technology through scams or through digital art of like apes, which has been quite popular. Mm -hmm. But in your article, you speak about its use for uh, vehicle ownership and these other types of interesting use cases for the future of the digital economy. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you'd wonder, well, you know, why is, 
you know, the Chinese government taking an interest in a- NFTs, which are just known for, you know, you know, bored apes and all this digital art stuff. And, you know, the the reason is that, yeah, the, the government is not really thinking about digital art, I don't I don't think. What it's thinking about really are, are more mundane use cases for transmitting data. And one of the the architects of the the BSN actually, um, you know, provided this example of, you know, the, the, here's the most boring mundane example of a use case, which is really interesting mm-hmm. if, you, if, you, if you think about it. The DMV, you know, your, uh, the, the Motor Vehicles or MVA, Motor Vehicles Administration, where you have the car titles, you know, information held. Uh, and so, you know, they were talking about the fact that, well, if you used a BSN, if you use the blockchain-based service network and you use their blockchain infrastructure, what you could do is you could make the title of the car an NFT. So the data associated with your with your car ownership is now this unique token that can be held. And then because it's on the blockchain, the, you know, the history of it is held. So you don't have the sort of siloed sort of government bureaucracy, you know, databases, you have a record structure, which is on a blockchain and, 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 you know, it w- could be transferred more efficiently. Different agencies could see that information. The car company could see that information. Uh, so the idea, in fact, you know, the folks in the BSN were saying, have been saying that, they imagine that this type of use, this sort of mundane sort of data storage and ownership information, digital ownership, uh, could probably use for you know hundreds of applications. That's really what they're building for: public utilities, you know, private sector information, any area where ownership should be digitized, is where an NFT could be useful. So that's really what this is about. It's about the administrative state being able to 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 make everything into an nft so that data could be stored could be transmitted more easily and accessed more easily selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify is there to help you grow shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36 percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms because businesses that grow grow with shopify Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, so ideally this could create a kind of more modernized DMV, uh, which should be a welcome step, correct? Or is it not exactly that? Yeah, I mean, it all sounds good, right? Like that's uh, that sounds like Shorter all line. the upside. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, so so obviously the folks in China aren't going to going to talk about the the potential downsides here. I mean, this is like a lot of the technological innovation that is happening in China. I mean, because at the base 
it's a government controlled infrastructure or, or architecture, right? I mean, the Chinese government is going to really hold the keys to to the system. So whether it's the DMV information or other ownership information, what you're talking about, if this system, you know, really evolves and progresses to where I think they want to take it, you're talking about a circumstance where so much data, public data, private data is really, you know, you know, on top of the government's, uh, the government's platform. Now, depending on the information, I mean, you know, I, you know, I don't want to paint, I, I don't want to be unfair in that, you know, as these, the architects of this platform talk about it, you know, they'll say on one hand, they'll say, well, it's going to be built. So, you know, all the information is not going to be visible to the government necessarily, right? It's like the government does control the infrastructure at the bottom, but the data that will be accessed that, you know, your data will be sort of between you and between the platform provider, maybe the business that's creating this NFT or the, the agency that's dealing with it. But, you know, the catch there though, is that, you know, anyone operating is still going to have to follow, you know, Chinese law. And the government has really over the past, you know, really this year especially, has put in place a lot of measures to ensure that the government has ready, ready, if not real time, but definitely ready access to data, any data that's transmitting within the country. So, you know, you could, you know, whether it's a sort of backdoor sort of situation that's built into some of these applications, or just the fact that now data is more, even though it's sort of held on a decentralized system, you can kind of think of it as it, it kind of I think it's sort of central. If you have an authoritarian government building this platform, it kind of centralizes it because it makes it more accessible to them. It's really an interesting new thing happening where a decentralized network can be exploited or leveraged by a centralized authority like the Chinese government. That is the nightmare of cryptocurrency enthusiasts for sure, <laughs> I could imagine. Exactly. So you speak about this strengthening of enforcement or, um, I guess, authoritarianism. And so the BSN will be the underlying infrastructure. And the Chinese regulars have spoke about this, about their ability to, I guess, silence ideas that they don't like uh, through a click button or something yeah, like that. I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting, right? Because, you know, there was even one comment from one of the, I think the the executive director of the BSN, where he was talking about the, the infrastructure. And yeah, he, he said, clearly, you know, if someone builds something on it, uh, you know, build something on this this blockchain network, you know, that is not uh, permissible or that, that, you know, I'm sort of paraphrasing that, you know, that the authorities don't like, we can, you know, click a button and delete the whole chain. You know, so it's 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 really interesting Quite to permissionless. See. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not really permissionless. And they even have this techno this terminology that they use called um open permissioned blockchain uh, you know so it's open <laughs> but it is it is you know permissioned meaning well it's not really open you have to get permission to to use it so you know a bit of an oxymoron there yeah like a one-way mirror kind of thing exactly exactly okay and so now you spoke about earlier about china's 14th five-year plan for national informatization can you uh, speak a little bit more about the strategic risks to nation states through this plan and what its vision is? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, I'll start with the vision first, right? Because the the vision and and you know, you have to understand that documents like these are aspirational, you know, state planning documents, right? It doesn't mean that everything's going to happen, but it certainly gives you an a lens into the strategy of the government. And you know, the the overall vision is, you know, I would say looking at that document and some previous documents that have come out uh, from the government, you know, the idea of a really an integrated data nation state, you know, where data, pretty much all the data that is created in the country that is transmitted is accessible. It's accessible to state planners. It's, it's accessible to the government to be held, analyzed, and to be leveraged in whatever way, whether that's law enforcement, whether that's, you know, innovation, trade, I mean, you know, whatever you want to say. So it's this idea of this, this fully digitized economy. And in terms of what does it mean for the rest of the world, what does it mean for the U.S.? I mean, there there are two sides of it. There's for folks in China, there's definitely a sort of surveillance state, right? That is is that's the biggest risk. That's the biggest issue. That's mostly domestic. I mean, there may be some international issues there in terms of you know if foreign companies are going to be operating in China and participating on these networks, then there's definitely a foreign surveillance uh, risk there. That, that that's clear, um, right? Because surveillance gets easier once you start once you start building and operating on a you know an integrated platform where China controls the data and has access to it. But the other side of it, which is maybe a little bit further out, is a competition threat or risk. And this is, I mean, sort of hear me out here, because this may not uh, seem immediate. But when, when I, you know, as, as we look at this strategic document and what is it, what it's saying, it's really saying that, you know, the digital economy should be built on data derived from the internet, and that that data is going to allow innovation. That data is going to allow us, you know, or they would say them to to come up with new types of applications. And there's another example that actually came up in in, in this research that we've been doing at, at, into the BSN, which is self-driving cars. Here's like a, a perfect example of, you know, where there could be a competition threat. So self-driving cars are sort of in the works and are being tested right now. And the immediate way that people had been thinking or have been thinking about data transfer between cars is sort of a one-to-one -one sort of linear transmission in terms of safety information. So if you have a bunch of self-driving cars, they're going to have to ping each other uh, within their vicinity, right? Like you ping a car that's right next to you to, to share information or to read its speed, et cetera, et cetera. That is sort of one-to-one. -one. That's sort of linear transmission. That's how some of the, the, the Chinese planners have been talking about it. Their vision is, at least in the BSN, is that this idea that self-driving cars should be built on a blockchain or the data system should be built on a blockchain so that cars could not just ping each other, you know, one-to-one, -one, but that they would be able to tap into a data stream that is really sort of comprehensive and, 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 and dynamic that enables greater data analysis. And so what does that mean? It means that you know, better innovation with safety, with, tra you know, transportation applications, you sort of take that one innovation and you could extrapolate it to ride sharing innovation, to emergency response, to delivery systems, to, you know, greater tr a transportation network system that is just more dynamic and more robust because you're using a, you know, well-tested new system, new platform for exchanging data. And so what does that mean if China, you know, creates that and then the next generation 
combination of data systems and car systems really are suited for for that environment. Now we're 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 thinking sort of beyond here, right? I I, I don't want to you know I don't want to you know make the impression that like oh this is going to happen next year. No, I mean we're talking about you know computer science innovation that you know yeah is looking way out in the future, but that's the thing. The Chinese government is doing that. It's it's really you know in fact I probably should have said in the beginning that the blockchain based service network is a generational project. It it's it's actually you know it's taken a page out of the book from the creation of the internet, which was a a multi decade generational project before the internet that we all know and use and love actually became you know a, a publicly useful. Uh, so the idea is that the next level of the internet or the next generation, their calculus is that, you know, blockchain technology or distributed ledger technology will enable more dynamic innovation. And if that innovation gets sort of a global scale, allows more, uh, more competitive applications and industries, you know, there's a risk there if that's happening in China built on really the Chinese plumbing or the, you know, the, the Chinese government infrastructure and the U.S. and other countries are not able to compete, you could see a strategic disadvantage there in the, you know, in the decades ahead, potentially. That, that is a really interesting point regarding the generational project approach. But before we get there, can we quickly discuss the uh, specific areas mentioned in China's vision? I know we spoke about blockchain, oh. but are there any other particular focus? Oh, I mean, yes. I mean, it's so it's almost funny that this five-year plan. Uh, one of the words that jumped out to me was the word "smart." It was seldomly used, I believe. No, no, it's used <laughs> a lot, <laughs> right? I mean, it's used. You know, I don't know how many times in, in the document. I know I think it's like over two hundred times, because the, you know the document talks about you know smart customs, smart borders, um, smart cities, smart courts, smart investigations. That basically this is the informatized economy where you know when they're saying smart, they're me they mean that oh this type of service is going to be driven by data, data collection and data analysis, smart healthcare, right? Smart elder care. So, so really that's this vision that, yeah, the digital economy is, it's not just that it's plugged into the internet. Like, you know, so many things are, you know, you can search online, you can find out about things. No, it's, it's actually that the devices and the services that are offered within the country, within the society, are driven by data and data analysis. They collect data, they receive data, you know, um, they transmit data. It's this idea, and that you know can make them smarter because what does it mean? It means you've got more data points, right? So you have data that you can collect. Now you can analyze that data, make your application maybe better. You know, it's it's all the stuff that you know, we think of here, you know, here in the US, it's it's like we think about, you know, oh, wow. So uh, the internet, you know, my web browser is so much is smart. You know, my uh, social media site is smart. It, it gives me better ads, you know, or, or maybe worse ads. Maybe you don't want to see those ads. You know, the, the algorithm, right? The algorithm is based on... Yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, so it's based on the data of your, the patterns of you, you know, of, of your viewing on that platform, your activity on that platform. So let's just take that. And that's a form of sort of, you know, I don't know if you call it machine learning or not, but right. But I mean, that's the application is learning from your behavior. So if you, that's just a very narrow, I mean, we see that a lot, but it, that's just one narrow example. I mean, if you think that not just your online browsing, 
could be learned from. But what if everything was learned from everything that you did? So you're you're riding the train, uh, and you're of course you know we talked about car examples, right? You're you know all the patterns of your driving, of your purchases. When you get into the digital smart money, which is also a project happening within within China, right? Creating a central bank digital currency, which is, will be quote unquote smarter. Now your your financial behavior is going to be learned from, analyzed, and then uh, the government and or companies will create products or create other innovations relating to that. So it's this whole idea of everything be, being fed by data and being quote unquote smarter. Yeah. As you said, data is an electricity for China. Yeah. Uh, which is a scary, but also promising, uh, I guess, use case. We'll see how it turns out. So it seems that you spoke earlier about this generational project and Given the U.S. approach, maybe I'm speaking a bit broadly, but often projects here are very short-term focused, you know, looking at profits, looking at short-term gains. But China's approach is a little bit different. What's the outside appeal of foreign businesses to China's BSN? Well, you know, that's I, I think it's it's yet to be seen exactly how how much foreign businesses are going to want to build on the BSN. Something is going to have to happen first. And I think we're sort of, we're at an early stage because you think about it, the BSN isn't at the point where, you know, companies are, are using it and there's all this activity happening, happening. The BSN is in a, it's in a development phase. It's, it's in a, and a, and a research R and D phase, basically, you know, what's happening is the BSN is tr encouraging developers from around the world to start tapping into this this infrastructure. It's encouraging or trying to encourage developers from Asia and Europe and, and elsewhere to be a part of the BSN network, to build bridges with the BSN network, and to and to sort of help spread the word. I would say of of the BSN. That's what's happening. So it hasn't really, you know, you know, it, it's not that the BSN is being used. It's you know, that that development is the aim is to make that development be the infrastructure that other companies use. So it's still at a very early stage. And I'll even say that, you know, it's it's not clear that the BSN is going to win. But why the BSN is important is uh, because, you know, there there are other blockchain projects happening in China, even that the Chinese government is doing. But the blockchain based service network is the only one that I know that is clearly suited. For, it's directed externally. You know, it's like there's the, their internal side, but there's ex, there's their international side. So it's the one that's really trying to get people from the outside to to tap into it. Where other blockchain projects in China are, you know, like about you know one bank, or, you know, domestic industry only, just doing stuff within the country. This is global in scope, at least aspirationally. So it seems that China is somewhat seeking to replace the U.S.'s role in the global economy, and or at least its aspiration is. And it, we've seen the U.S. response more recently through an executive order talking about cryptocurrency. And in that order, it calls for the government to examine the risk and benefits of cryptocurrency and a kind of adopts a more cautious approach. I just wanted to hear your take on the two diverging approaches. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the change with the difference here is that you know the U.S. has sort of withheld you know, withheld judgment on a lot of the sort of digital asset space in general in terms of the government. I mean the that executive order that you're talking about is actually it's it's a good thing in that you know for years there's been all this digital asset 
you know, innovation happening, but there wasn't really any sort of strategic, there wasn't a, a government nod, nothing coming from U.S. leadership that sort of officially said, okay, yeah, we need to take this stuff seriously. No, not just protecting ourselves from it, but, you know, identifying what would be the strategic benefits. And so even though the jury is out, you know, it's not clear that the U.S. will create its own central bank digital currency, but the U.S. is saying, hey, we need to do the time and actually evaluate it. We need to explore. We need to see what 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 may be there. But the, the tough part about this is that, you know, you could kind of say that the U.S. is a little bit late. You know, you know, China has multiple projects, launched multiple pilot projects with digital currency, obviously the blockchain stuff that they're doing. And, you know, that's maybe a function of having a centralized authoritarian government that can just say from the top, you know, everyone do this. But it, it's, it's sort of laid a foundation already that the researchers are already off to the races with. And in the U.S., we're not there. So, you know, uh, and so not that the U.S. would copy China. I mean, my take is that the U.S. is going to have to think, you know, policymakers are going to have to think strategically, uh, but they're not going to be able to do what China's doing, right? There's not going to be, a, the president's not going to be able to say, okay, everyone do X, Y, Z and create all this innovation and, and sort of micromanage it. That's not going to, that shouldn't happen in the U.S. But what I think U.S. stakeholders are going to have to do is think about, well, what should be the U.S. alternative, right? We know we need to think strategically. How can that be done with the private sector? How could innovation be you know, fostered so that um, free markets and, and the U.S. innovation that we have can develop you know, to give the U.S. that strategic advantage and allow the U.S. to compete? So you know, I think the strategic generational long-term look is needed, but the U.S. is just going to have to do it differently. And I think we're on the right path. We, we just have to sort of catch up. Although we're a little late to the party, you offer some, I guess, three responses that U.S. could uh, could take to China's activity. Could you speak about these? Yeah, I mean, you know, some of them are uh, sort of on the defensive side, and some are on the offensive side. I mean, I think that the first thing is a proactive approach. So this sort of long-term vision and, and long-term research and development. This, I think the U.S. needs to do exactly what it did or, you know, similarly to what it did with the Internet, which is start funding long term, you know, R&D to develop, you know, uh, and you don't even if it's not blockchain based, you know, you know, you don't have to even call it blockchain. Right. But, you know, decentralized computer networks, there definitely needs to be more investment into that because that seems to be the next stage. I mean, whether or not you think, you know, blockchain is the end all be all and, and, you know, it's not the end all be all, but it is clear that this sort of type of research does answer some, it does respond to some, you know, real thorny computer science problems and some, you know, computer science, you know, issues that need to be that need to be tackled. And so there should, I think, be more investment in this type of research so that innovation could then come from that. And, you know, maybe one way is to sort of fund at the university level research that allows decentralized, um, you know, decentralized ledger technology to be experimented upon. I mean, that's one, you know, and I think the second is that being clear about what is happening in China, especially as it relates to the issue of of privacy. And, you know, maybe these are, so there's sort of like two issues here. There's like the, the, the two responses. One response is being clear 
about what China is doing and the risk to privacy. So in the global community, because, you know, China is talking at, at international forums about its innovation, about its digital currency, about what it's doing with fintech, with financial technology. They're not going to mention the privacy risk. They're not going to mention the authoritarian risk. So I think, you know, U.S. policymakers have to keep that front and center in the international uh, discussion. And then there is what should the U.S. be doing internally? Because the, once you start getting into the world of data innovation and informatizing everything, you then run up against the issue of privacy. So a third thing is that the U.S., I think we really have to articulate what are the perimeters of privacy when it comes to data. We've had a long, you know, for a decade plus conversation about, you know, private companies and our data, you know, that's sort of old. But what about you know, when data is being collected through a digital currency and the government is making use use of that, you know, you know, blockchain technology, which is transparent and data is up, is up. What are the privacy technologies that need to be developed so that there is not a, you know, we don't have overstep so that governments don't overstep. Um, so these are issues that, you know, privacy is something that we've been talking about, but I don't think we've been talking about it in the form of, you know, the digital economy conversation. So that needs to be dealt with uh, I think, you know, immediately. Thank you. Uh, and interestingly enough, the individual doesn't have really an ability to opt out of this digital economy or ecosystem. Exactly. You know, and we, we and, you know, some of it is, is that, you know, it's like we have the policy need to discuss these things and figure out the policies, but the technology has to be developed. So there are people doing lots of develop, um, lots of research on privacy technology, even in the crypto space. Some of that technology maybe could be leveraged for non-cryptocurrency uses. So so, so it just means like we need to start investing in privacy and understanding the implicate, how far can we go with privacy with our technology? And then what's the, pol how does that balance with the policy? So investing in privacy technology, researching privacy technology, that could even help us understand, you know, as we create a digital economy, we're going to have these safeguards for privacy. Why? Because we actually know what privacy technology can do. So that's a whole research area right there that's ripe for, for investigation you know, today. Hopefully the March executive order uh, answers these questions, or at least hopes some promises for hopeful answers. Thank you, Yaya. This is wonderful. Thank you, Alvaro. Glad to talk with you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com forward slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is edited by Jen Pazia Howell, and your audio engineer for this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.